Experience the beauty and emotion of Lent and Easter with Christianity Today's newest devotional, Easter, in the everyday. Thoughtful readings from a variety of pastors, theologians, and writers invite you into the emotional stages of Christ's journey, from humility to hope to love. Beginning on Ash Wednesday and ending at Pentecost, this digital devotional is perfect for individual or group study. Get it today at orderct.com easter24. This episode is brought to you in part by D6 Conference, a pivotal event for family ministry dedicated to nurturing discipleship based on Deuteronomy 6. Empower your ministry team and family by joining us. Register now at d6conference.com. Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts. The other day, my kids came in from playing outside, and they've been playing with some neighborhood uh, children, I think dodgeball. And one of the children was hit with the dodgeball, not not in a dangerous way. It's a, it's a harmless little ball. Uh, but he started crying, and his mother immediately came in and started yelling, this is why I don't like you playing outside. This is dangerous. Come on in and play we." And uh, my children were kind of shocked by this, but the dodgeball came to an end and was replaced, at least in that kid's case, with a screen. More and more and more children are, are facing the decision between the screen and the dodgeball field and choosing the screen. And even more than that, a lot of kids don't even have the option. They, they grow up in a world of nonstop technology and nonstop screens. And if one will think about how how exhausting technology can be. For those of us who are adults, think of what it would be in the formative years having every kind of technological device coming at you. And so one of the number one questions that I get from parents is navigating technology, whether that's smartphones or social media or television time, all of those sorts of, of, of media and technology questions. And that's why I wanted to talk today with my friend Andy Crouch, who's senior strategist at the John Templeton Foundation. And he is the author of a magnificent uh, new book called The TechWise Family, Everyday Steps to putting tech, for Putting Technology in Its Proper Place. Uh, many things I love about this book. I love everything Andy Crouch writes, but I specifically like this book because it's not a Luddite rejection of technology. It's not a, um, it's not a shaming book for parents who maybe have, have too much technology in their lives or in their children's lives. You won't read this book and have someone screaming at you. What you'll have is good, practical wisdom and counsel. And that's why I think this book is so helpful. Andy, you talk about at the very beginning the, the use of nudges in our lives and how, the, how uh, smartphone technology especially has kind of moved us into a tyranny of nudges. What do you mean by that? <laughs> 
Yes, the tyranny of the notification, that little uh, buzz in your pocket or blip of audio that just says, pay attention to me. And I, I think of nudges as small things um, that, that steer us in a certain direction, either mm. a, a beneficial direction or, or a direction that's really distracting. Mm. <laughs> and uh, we know how distracting these notifications can be uh, for us uh, as adults. I mean, let alone for kids. We know, you know, children, one of the things we learn as children is how to manage attention, how to pay attention. And it's not easy for children. Mm-hmm. It's not that easy for us as adults. And when you think about all those distracting nudges that technology provides, um, I think it's a problem. On the other hand, what I suggest in the book is actually um, we can build in healthy nudges. That is, we can make some choices about the way we shape the space we live in, the way we use our time, certain times of day, where we actually nudge ourselves toward a more healthy use of technology rather than sort of the default settings, all are to nudge us into more and more use of technology, often at the expense of really being present with other people and uh, present in the real world. One of the things I like about the TechWise family is sometimes when people are talking about technology as it relates to family life, all that they're really talking about is porn or dangerous uh, situations with people on the, on the other end of the internet. But you are giving a great deal of attention to many other things. And one of the primary things that you're talking about is the relationship to time. And I, mm. I was especially interested in the, the sorts of ways that you and your household have tried to tried to redeem time from the, the smartphone. Can, can you give some counsel maybe for, for people who are trying to figure that out? Well, the, one of the real challenges about our whole technological age, and, and I, by this I think it's much deeper than just screens and computers, is that it's always on. Mm. The power grid is always on. The telephone is always there. And machines can run 24-7. And in fact, many machines run at their best if they're on all the time. In fact, the industrial age of factories realized you needed three shifts because to use those factory machines in their most efficient way, you had to have them running all the time. It's hard to shut it all down. And it's really hard to shut down our world of Wi-Fi and cell phone and cell data and so forth. And, and over against that, we have this fundamental, uh, I mean, commandment at the heart of the Bible to imitate God in having this rhythm of work and rest in the way that we structure our time. And we human beings cannot run 24-7. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need sleep every day, which is, I think, one of the most perplexing and humbling things about being a creature like we are is that God doesn't slumber or sleep, according to the Psalms, but we do. Mm-hmm. And then we, in imitation of God and some, I don't know exactly how it works that God himself works and rests, but that's what it says in Genesis. And um, that's what we're meant to do. So our family has decided we really need to be serious about a couple things with these always on devices, which is basically we need to do the thing they're not designed to do very easily, and that is turn them all off. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And um, we do that one hour a day, one day a week, and at least one week a year, which would be kind of a Sabbath rhythm. And I write about this in the book, is that you really need at least an hour a day where everybody in the family, not just the kids, uh, sets aside all those glowing things Mm -hmm. and is just present to each other in the world that we, we live in. And then one day a week for us, that's Sunday, one week a year, actually for us, it's more like two weeks usually where we just turn everything off, especially the email for the adults. But then also we realized we needed to be careful about bedtime and and morning time. Mm. And 
you know, uh, over, we did some research for this book, uh, over 80% of parents uh, sleep with a phone next to them. <laughs> uh, similar number for teenagers, a little less for younger kids, thank goodness. Mm -hmm. I think it's the worst, almost the worst thing you can do to have that thing right there, ready to glow at you at any moment. Yeah. <laughs> so we've started putting our devices to bed before we go to bed. And actually for me, the even bigger discipline is actually when I get up in the morning. I, you know, I grew up before all this technology was so readily available. I remember getting up in the morning and praying. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what a thought. Now what do I do? I'm so tempted. Now my phone often stays downstairs, but I walk downstairs and the first thing I'm inclined to do is pick it up and see whatever nudges have come. Yeah. And I've realized I really want to reclaim the, that morning time. And what I've started to do is just uh, walk outside every morning before I will let anything glow at me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I just open the door, no matter how it can be raining, it can be, you know, cold, it can be hot, humid, whatever, and just walk outside and feel something of the air before I immerse myself in this technological world. Well, I, I noticed that you mentioned uh, the, the guide that you all have is no screens before double digits of time. <laughs> I thought that was a helpful way to put it. <laughs> That's the other dimension of time is human growth and development. And I just, uh, I just think it's, it's very short-sighted to have our children spend a lot of time, at least, with, with screens before they're at least 10. Because, honestly, we're all going to spend the rest of our lives staring at these things. I have two of them glowing in front of me right now, even as we're talking. Yeah. I spend a huge amount of my life with this, uh, this rectangle glowing at me. And childhood, especially the early years of childhood, are this time when we are absolutely wired for three-dimensional, full-body, full-contact engagement with the world mm -hmm. and all its sights, sounds, smells, experiences. And to have our kids already kind of chained to those devices, I think is robbing of them of really the unique moment of those single-digit years that you'll never get back. I mean, literally, your brain yeah. will never be the same. It will never be as open to experience and learning. Uh, you have the rest of your life to swipe back and forth on a, on a glowing rectangle, but you don't have the rest of your life to be a child. So I, we really just radically limited our children's exposure to television and computers and all that stuff in those early pre-double-digit years. You know, I've been with a lot of elderly people as they were dying, and mm. one of the things that I notice is how people, almost without exception, sort of revert back to childhood uh, as they're moving toward death. Sometimes uh, they, they think that they are back uh, in, in childhood and wondering when mom and dad are going to come. Sometimes they, they, they have their minds clear, but they're reflecting a lot about those childhood years. And I wonder what that would be like if your, your entire childhood was run by managing all of these digital devices. Wow, wow. And, and the reality is that those devices give us very, uh, I mean, they're very engaging in the moment. Yeah. Um, and, and we can almost not help looking at them and engaging with them, partly because huge amounts of design has gone into making them attractive. But actually, the, I think the experiences we get through screens are on the whole much thinner. We know, for example, that uh, when you're reading, if you're reading a physical book, your memory of yeah. what you read is much richer visually and conceptually of what you read if you read an actual codex, a bound book, than if you read the same material on a screen. 
Um, and and I think it, you're right. I mean, it, I haven't thought about it in quite this way, but it will be a real tragedy if the only memories we have from the most formative years of our lives are these kind of thin memories that are barely memories. I mean, how much can I remember, honestly, of what I've seen on screens in the mm -hmm. last 24 hours? Not very much. Whereas those rich embodied experiences we have of touch and taste and sound and movement, um, which is what childhood is meant to be all about, I think. And in some ways, all of human life ought to have a lot of that. Those are the kind of memories that are actually much richer uh, in every way and last longer, I think. I laughed uh, out loud when I was reading the, the, the galleys of, of your book uh, when I came across the section on boredom because it was right after I was talking to my wife and I said, you know, one of the things that I desperately need in my life right now is time to be bored. And yes. what I meant by that was, you know, so so often the sorts of ideas that come to me about my life or my family or things to write or things to they, they tend to happen when I'm just walking or you know, in some situation where there's nothing going on, mowing the grass, those, those kinds of things. And you talk in this book, you have an entire section here on boredom as a good thing. Uh, how do you convince a 10-year-old that it's a good <laughs> thing to be bored? <laughs> you, well, I don't know. Our parenting philosophy was some things I can't convince you of, but they're still true and we're still going to act on them. Mm -hmm. So I don't think I can convince a 10-year-old that it's good to be bored, but I can insist that I, I have friends who uh, I actually think my own mother may have done this, but I was talking with friends just this past week who said they've told their kids, you cannot use that word in our presence. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because boredom is, um, I think there's two sides to boredom. I think boredom is in a way a sign of what I would call frustrated image bearing. That is, we're meant to be creative and we get bored when we're in situations or environments that don't seem to allow for creativity. So there's like banal, boring environments like the airport or the mm -hmm. grocery store line that really aren't great places to be a human being, honestly. And our reaction to that is to feel this sense of frustration. But there's another sense of it that I think you're, you're getting at, which is it's actually the quiet and the, the waiting out of which real image-bearing creativity emerges. And we need to convey to our kids, you know, on the other side of this frustration you're feeling is something really amazing that you won't experience if I just solve your problem of being bored for you. Mm. And and that's what I'm, I remember my own mother doing this for me. Um, and gosh, I lived in such a rich environment as a child. We lived out in, in the middle of cornfields where that you could explore in for hours as a kid. But I would just get stuck in this kind of frustrated, pent up, like lack of energy and she'd send me out to do something rather than let me stew in being bored and always on the other side of that was actually a very rich experience and maybe only on the other side of that in a way and the great danger of our devices now is that they always offer to solve our boredom problem but i actually think we're more capable of being bored than ever yeah. uh, we're more susceptible to being bored than ever in that sort of deficient way that that maybe is one sense of that word i had a i had a very similar childhood i was i spent most of every day out in the woods romping yeah. through the swamps and the bios of uh, coastal mississippi and i wouldn't trade that for anything and it, it really is a it really is a loss on the part of so many kids to be in this in this cocoon, and then a loss for for us as adults to also be in in the cocoon. Well, you talk about at one point the use of one technology to combat some of these others, and that technology is the car. 
And I think you are completely right about the way that a car can, uh, well, for me individually, if I'm taking a long car ride, I can I can think about things and pray in a way that, because I'm forced to be by myself uh, at that point. Yeah. But also in having conversation uh, with with children, you talk about using the car for those sorts of conversations. I think there are a lot of parents listening to this, uh, maybe some kids who are listening to this, for whom what they their, their car experience is: let's get in the car, we're all exhausted, let's put on our uh, for everybody mm-hmm. who's not driving, let's put on our headphones and just kind of retreat into into wherever. But you've got a different prescription for them. I think it's the most astonishing time. It's the closest you are to each other, I think, often. I mean, just physically, you're – and this is why we're all tempted to put on those devices because it's it's challenging to be with your family members and be that close and be that stuck, especially if it's a longer ride. But in our family, we sort of set up this rule. Car time is conversation time. And uh, when we get in the car, it's a chance to talk. And Sherry Turkle, who's written some really important books about technology and its effect on our relationships, in her book, Reclaiming Conversation, uh, she says every conversation hits a a kind of a decision point at about the seven-minute mark. And the seven-minute mark is – seven minutes is about as long as you can do small talk. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, you can talk about trivial things for seven minutes. But in about seven minutes, you run out of trivial things to say. And she has this beautiful thing she says. At about the seven-minute mark, someone has to take a risk. And the beautiful thing about car rides, aside from just very short shuttling-type trips – Although even those short ones, if they're if they're at the end of, the, of a school day, it's amazing how much conversation needs to happen just to unpack that day that that kid has just come from. But if it's longer than seven minutes, you've got a chance to get to that seven-minute mark and move beyond it. And if mm. somebody will take a risk, whether it's a parent or a child or a sibling or a spouse, on the other side of that is real conversation. And when else do we have lengths of time like that together? Very rarely. So uh, this was the great upside surprise to me. I was so dreading like car driving places with my kids. Mm -hmm. I I just thought, oh, this is going to be drudgery, you know, in those sort of middle active middle school years before they can drive themselves. I never expected that actually uh, a great sense of loss happened when each of our kids got their driver's licenses, which my daughter just did this spring. And now they can drive themselves and we no longer have these conversation opportunities. It just ended up being some of the richest times we've had as parents and children. I was talking the other day to an Eastern Orthodox layman friend of mine who had been at at some gathering with a group of, I think, about 12 evangelical seminary students in, in the end of their seminary time preparing for the pastorate. And he said that pornography addiction came up. And he said, how many of these seminary students would you imagine said to me that they had uh, addiction to pornography? And I said, 12. And he said, 12. Uh, and so he was very concerned, saying, what's going to happen to the, the future of the church when those charged with being spiritual leaders are already in bondage to this uh, pornified uh, culture that is able to use technology in order to be weaponized? Wow. You talk a, a while about uh, in the book about where this drive toward pornography comes from and how we can combat it. And what I liked about that is you weren't just putting hedges around the porn. Uh, you, you were really getting at why people are driven to porn. Would you explain that maybe? I'm sure we have people listening to this right now who are in this endless pattern 
of porn, feeling horrible, feeling shame, back into the porn, and the cycle just keeps going and going and going. What would your, your counsel for them be? Well, and as I say briefly in the book, I don't go into a lot of detail, but it's part of my own story as a as an adult, and um, I, I just I mean it's part of almost everybody's story because it, it's I think it's actually the it's the technological culture applied to our deepest need and desire, which is for union with another, hmm. uh, which ultimately is not a desire, by the way, that can be fulfilled in any kind of sexual union, even in marriage. In a way, it's, it's just a pointer towards our drive for union with God. But the, the technological culture says there's a way to have a, a, a good enough simulation of this mm-hmm. <laughs> that your that drive will be met. But, but in harnessing that drive in the way technology does, it also creates this cycle of addiction. And really all addiction is this quest for a sense of power and connection. And all, all addictive substances and processes in different ways plug into our need for that. Yeah, so in the book, I try to to say we're never going to be able to filter that. Yeah. <laughs> so you, you can't, there is no internet filter strong enough to filter out that powerful need, really. Not that we shouldn't employ internet oh, filters. Yeah. No, no. And, and so, you know, the example I use in the book is, I mean, say, take the city of Beijing, which is a very polluted major mm-hmm. metropolitan area. If you go out in, on the street in Beijing, you should absolutely wear a mask, right, mm-hmm. on the more, most polluted days. Like, this pollution is all around us. You should use all kinds of measures to minimize your exposure. But that is n- in no way going to address the underlying source of the pollution, right? And I think the deeper thing here is technology has allowed us to acquire certain kinds of power that don't involve relationship. (laughs) Yeah. And all true forms of power come from relationship. They come from intimacy and connectedness with other people. And so the real, I don't even know if I like the word solution because it's too technical a word, but the real way out in a sense of all these distortions that technology brings into our lives is deeper connection uh, mm. with the real world, with the God who made the real world and with other people. And the more that in my life I have daily satisfying context of connection, the less powerful that, that simulation is in attracting me and seducing me into, into this very isolated, very distorted kind of use of technological power. So for me, it's all about reclaiming a kind of connection with my wife, with my children, with the real world, with good, good embodied experience, uh, rather than the thin options that present themselves to me. I find that a lot of people assume that what happens is that a marriage goes bad and then the porn starts. I, uh-huh. I tend to find it, it works in reverse from that. Right. And one of the things that I've noticed is uh, in church life— when I've seen a man or a group of men going through unemployment, there's almost always a spiritual warfare going on, uh, driving toward porn, which comes right to what you're arguing here. When a life doesn't seem to be full, uh, yes. that's when you're really in peril. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And we have embraced individualism in a way that we can't even imagine this, but there are other cultures at other times, but even in our own time, where human beings are just so much more connected to each other than mm-hmm. we are now. And, and the isolation that we all live with, which, by the way, is made possible by technology, not just uh, digital technology, but, you know, the car isolates yeah. me if I'm driving by myself. 
The phone isolates me because now I can have conversations and you don't have to be here, but we're not present to each other in the same way as if we were together. And you just compound all these isolations that technology actually makes possible and makes profitable in a way. And it leaves us very vulnerable to these uh, sort of thin simulations that, that restore to us some sense of activity, agency, connection, even though we know, even while we're engaged in it, that it's not really true. And this is not just porn. It's also liking things on Instagram and, and reacting to things on Twitter. And all these are thin versions of what we're actually made for, I think. Well, what about for parents when it comes to, say you've got children who are not yet uh, exposed to porn, what are some things parents can do to try to, to minimize that as their children are, are forming? I mean, I, I remember when a, a neighbor of mine brought a pornographic magazine, this was right before the, the digital uh-huh. revolution, thankfully, and that was so embedded in my mind that I think if I were to allow myself right now, I could probably go through and reconstruct uh, Uh, every page of that moment. And I just wonder, when you think about the way that this can just destroy kids in those formative years and create scripts that are going to be very difficult for them to turn back, how do parents navigate that when when it just seems to be a losing battle in front of you? Well, there's there's two things. The the easy one, and I'm putting air quotes around that with my fingers as I speak, is we really have to realize it is so unwise to give children unfettered access to screens on their own. Because without even trying, they we know what happens when we type certain search terms in with a completely innocent purpose. Yeah. And just you stumble across it. And so the idea that parents are giving their children smartphones with data plans at ages eight and nine, to me, I I try not to be judgmental about any of this because I understand the sometimes the pressures people feel. But but boy, I think it's a bad idea. (laughs) And I think that we need to set a norm in our families that actually all of us use our devices in view of each other. They aren't our private devices Mm. Mm. as much as possible for parents as for kids that shouldn't they shouldn't go into the bedroom like why? That's the last thing you need in your bedroom is a glowing rectangle. Yeah. So certainly for children, you know, establishing, we, we use these things together. We use them for a very specific purpose. We don't just sort of aimlessly browse around. That's another thing that I think help is, is a helpful thing, as well as all the obvious things of filtering your home internet and so forth. But I really, I would limit kids access to autonomous use of the device because they just, they don't know where they could end up. Uh, and, and we certainly, we do know, and we don't want, them to experience that without some uh, guidance. The trickier thing is honestly how to handle many other parents who will not have those same boundaries. Exactly. Kids will be over at their homes and... Or or even on a a church youth uh, mission trip. Oh gosh. (laughs) Yes, you're right. And, or Boy Scouts or, you know, any context where kids are together and some of them have these autonomous devices with absolutely untrammeled internet service uh, the reality is bo- boys in particular, but girls as well, girls are very active in this as well, that, that that's where they go. That's what they show each other. I think the other thing you can do is uh, establish an, a kind of an expectation that your kids will talk with you about what they see on their friends' phones. I will say one other thing that, that I've seen done that's really helpful, though we didn't do this quite with our kids in the same way that my friend has done it. He said to his, he has four sons, and they're all adolescents now, and they're like 11 to 18 or so. And he said to them, I'm your dad, 
it's my job to know more about what's going on in your life than anyone else in your life. Mm. And that means I can pick up your phone at any moment. I can ask you any question at any moment. And he's just established this norm with his sons. I'm going to ask you questions, sometimes awkward questions. I'm going to pick up your phone and look at it. And his older kids do have smartphones. And I think once kids are driving, that's when we let our kids have them. But he just has this, it's almost less the practice of, of actually picking up the device, unless you have some reason to think you need to intervene in that way. And it's more the expectation. I'm your dad until you're grown. I'm going to be the one who is most invested in your story, not your friends, not, not your pastor. Hmm. Uh, and I think that's the fundamental healthy approach that lays the foundation for handling whatever our kids come across. Landy Crouch, I've kept you longer than I promised you I would, but it's because I was so interested, as I always am in our conversation, and uh, just thankful for this book. It's called The TechWise Family, and you will want to you'll want to read this book, whether you are uh, someone grappling with technology, and we all are, or if you're parenting kids who are grappling with technology, and they all are, or if you are part of a body of Christ where you need to equip others uh, within the body when it comes to navigating these things, and we all are. So I recommend this book. It's called The TechWise Family. Thanks for being with us, Andy. Such a pleasure, Russell. Thank you very much. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts.